As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now... Nobody better to speak about what we saw over in the United Kingdom, as well as the potential agony over lag effects, how to understand them. John Riding, Chief Economic Advisor at Breen Capital, former Economic Advisor to the Bank of England. On this Thursday, John, when you take a look at some of this data, which isn't softening quickly enough, and you hear the hardline talk from the Federal Reserve, what's your sense about how far behind we are in terms of lag effects and when we'll actually see the, the ramifications? Well, Lisa, as you know, we had many discussions last year where I said that inflation was not transitory, was going to be a real problem, you know, and it, and it still is. And I mean, interestingly enough, in the numbers that, that Mike went over, um, you know, he didn't mention the prices paid, prices received data by manufacturing firms in the Philadelphia region, which like in the New York region went up uh, to uh, 34 and, and change from, from, from about 31. So, we're far from having defeated inflation at this point. And I would also take a little bit of issue on the rent story for two reasons. Um, one of which is rents in the CPI are rising roughly in line with the overall CPI. So they're they're neither adding nor subtracting to the overall rate of inflation. Well, people, you know, ha- paying for housing, paying for food, paying for energy are really important in forming people's inflation expectations. So the fact that new rents are declining when people are paying the higher level of existing rents, I, I don't think it's inappropriate. But but this idea that we always take out the bits that are pushing up inflation and look at inflation <coughs> excluding that, you know, I, I, I find a, you know, a bit problematic yeah. because it never – policymakers never do it the other way. Okay, this is really important because there are all these people coming out there and this is the biggest pushback and the reason why we've gotten lifts in markets. People say there are disinflationary elements and you point it to the rent story, you point to the used cars, you push back and you say that those are completely offset and then some by the other indicators. Is that right? Well, well, yes. I mean, we've had... and, And I actually think Fed policymakers are somewhat on top of this. We've had three times this year, three months of the 10 months which we've had CPI data, where the so-called core, excluding food and energy, only went up by three-tenths of a percent. And it was then followed by inflation um, picking up again. So, yes, one one report where you got an odd treatment from healthcare costs. Health insurance costs fell 4% in the CPI. Now, I'd love to have that health insurance policy, and I'm sure most people out there would love to have that, but I don't think anybody's health insurance costs fell by 4%. But, but my point is, inflation is 
the overall price index. And you can pick and, and choose and take this number out and take that number out. But the reality is inflation both here right. and globally is a problem. And central banks have created or at right. least made the problem worse by staying too easy for too long after the pandemic. And that liquidity and, and that those that stimulus has to be soaked right. up. Now, just one second, Tom, if I may. Please. There, there is a communication issue going on at the Fed, a, a, a further change in communication. Say, look, there's three things about policy. How fast are we going to raise rates? And they've clearly signaled they're going to slow the pace of increases and the market's got that story right. Then how high are we going to raise rates to? And then how long are we going to keep them there? And I think the market's got the how fast right. It's slowing. But I still think we're offside on how high and how long rates are going to stay there. Markets are pricing in barely reaching 5% on the Fed funds rate, and then the Fed quickly cutting rates thereafter. I'm amazed by that conversation. Absolutely. I I totally agree with you. I'm amazed by the certitude that they're going to do a pivot or whatever you you want to call it. This is an historic day. The Chancellor of the Exchequer stood up and said, we have austerity. You and I read Paul Johnson, 1987 – the English Disease. It was a beautiful essay about the struggles of Clement Attlee, Churchill, and the rest coming forward. What is the level of crisis in your United Kingdom right now? Is it something that's solvable? Is it a two-year recession, as Bailey talks about? Or is it an English disease that is larger? I I think that's a very um, difficult question to answer. I I think the, the... Finances of the economy, prospectively going forward, are in better shape now than they were prospectively with the um, budget, the mini budget that's put forward in September that helped spark the whole uh, crisis in the gilts market. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the UK is still struggling with Brexit and uh, uh, struggling with a lot of struggling with inflation issues. And the Bank of England, I don't think, has raised rates quickly enough or early enough to to get on top of that. But now we're faced with this very interesting question. I think the US may be faced with it. Can policymakers raise rates enough, tighten policy enough to get inflation under control without sparking a significant well, is the, is the financial Phillips curve crisis. operative right now and the financial stability John Williams talked about yesterday? Are these traditional theories operative right now? Well, I think the Phillips curve hasn't been operative since the late 1960s. I and I, and I think it is full very, I knew what the writing is. Very interesting that it gets them going. <laughs> very interesting that, that the very flat Phillips curve that policymakers talk about, we can keep changes. pushing unemployment down <laughs> without raising inflation, comes back as something that's going to uh, cure the inflation problem. I mean, the, the main thing about inflation is expectations and, and having people and companies understand that higher inflation isn't going to be allowed. And what we have in, for example, in this Philadelphia Fed report here, we saw it earlier, is company cost increases slowing, but the price increase is not slowing. Now, yes, the October numbers were were a little bit encouraging, right. probably most uh. in the PPI, <clears throat> but there's a big difference between Inflation right. having peaked at oh. levels we never thought we were going to get to and getting back to price stability. John, quickly, John from a Christmas tree farm north says, ask him about England, uh, U.S. and the World Cup. 
a nemesis team. Uh, we lost one nothing to the U.S. in 1950 in the, the first World Cup England played in. Uh, and then back in right. 2010, we, we tied 1-1. Um, day after Thanksgiving, it, it's going to be a, a, a great okay. time. And I, I'm going with England, obviously. I'm shocked. John Riding, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Right now, we are thrilled and honored to bring you for Global Wall Street, Ian Lingen. He's head of U.S. Rate Strategy at BMO Capital Markets. I called up Jersey and I said, I'm only talking to people today that have read Fred Frank Fabozzi cover to cover. In the bond world, folks, like Lingen's world, you have a Frank, Frank Fabozzi textbook of some 900 pages that prices out hardcover at $132, and only Lingen has read the thing cover to cover as well. Is this curve inversion in Frank Fabozzi's classic text? Uh, Frank Fabozzi was not looking for a curve inversion of this depth. I think more importantly, what Frank would have said is that this is a mispricing that needs to be rectified in the short order. We are taking the other side of that trade. We think that there's more inversion to be realized, and the most important mm -hmm. inversion, inverted curve is Fed funds versus 10-year yields, not just twos versus tens. So you're going from the vanilla spread of two-year, 10-year out to the many different spreads you look at, and you're going from from very short term out to 10. The dynamic of two different yields moving around, which pros are encyclopedic on, and frankly, our audience is like, say what? Is it about focusing on the 10-year dynamic or the two-year or the Fed funds dynamic? Which is more important? At this stage, I would say that the two-year yield reflects monetary policy expectations in the very short term, but the 10 and 30-year rates, that's the market simply moving on to what's next, and what's next is going to be a pretty significant economic slowdown. So the inversion is simply a tale of two different curves more than anything else. The yield curve contraction right now presents a huge challenge for the Federal Reserve. Massive. Because what you're seeing is the more they lean into hawkish talk, the more people buy longer-term treasuries, which ease financial conditions. It is this really difficult situation, a paradox for the Federal Reserve. At what point do they break something? At what point do they have to break something with rate hikes in order to get the market to say, even if you have lower rates, it is not good for risk assets? I think that ultimately what ends up happening is the Fed's watching real rates as much as anything else. Real rates remain elevated by the standard of the last uh, decade or so. And eventually, we're going to see a more significant pullback in risk assets and equities. I've personally been surprised that the S&P 500 is roughly 10% off of the lows. That also contributes to easier financial conditions. So the more quickly the market is willing to price in a pivot, the more the Fed will ultimately and need to do. At least you see that in the Bloomberg Financials Conditions Index, which was one standard deviation now and has rallied back more accommodative to negative 0.82 standard deviations. So this really raises an issue, especially as you hear John Williams basically saying, if we break something, we're going to keep rates where they are. We're not going to lower rates. And then people in the market say, mm, are you? We don't really <clears throat> believe it. So how do you view this, right, in terms of if something breaks, what does that even mean for the Fed to get some sort of response? Is the market right? So I think that there's an argument that the Fed is going to break something and allow it to be broken for longer than it has in prior cycles. So is that the S&P 500 down 25% from here? 
Maybe. It's not down 50. If stocks are off 50%, the Fed is going to need to respond in one way, shape, or form. What I think is more interesting when we look at what's being priced in in the market, there's an argument there's 50 basis points of rate cuts priced in for 2023. Essentially, that's what we're looking at. That's either 100% confidence of 50 or 25% confidence of 200. But what does it mean for something to break? What are you looking for to break that would even cause a Fed response? So a stronger dollar leads to emerging markets under strain defending their currencies. That could be a contagion issue. That's very much top of mind. But this cycle, I expect that what will ultimately break is going to be in the real economy. It'll be on the household level and it will be spending and we'll be faced with a traditional economic slowdown that the Fed is content to allow play out for a while. I got 14 questions. Let me go to the chance of the exchequer who opened his autumn statement today saying so much was international ramifications uh, upon his beleaguered United Kingdom. Is our curve inversion a symbol of a Fed misguided that is redounding upon other nations, including Britain? I think that the issues facing external markets are in part a function of the fact that the Fed has pushed back against becoming the de facto central bank to the world and has been focused primarily on the U.S. Right. And that has come at the expense of other economies. What does this inversion mean for our banks and the financial stability John Williams wanted to ignore yesterday? What's it mean for J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, the super regionals and smaller banks out there doing business with business? So traditionally, an inverted yield curve is bad for the financial sector because a steep curve implies the ability to create money via carry. The reality is, though, higher rates are generally better for banks than lower rates. And so if we are generally in a higher rate environment, I think that we'll find the financial sector not responding the way it typically has to an inverted yield curve. What are you going to do here? What's this change in strategy for the next week or so? I think that the market is getting poised for a breakout even more inverted from here. We're looking for- Well, give me a scale. Come on. To to a tenth of a percent point. Where are we going? What's a number? Uh, Negative 75 basis points in two stands, path of least resistance. So we're on the edge of Volcker inversion. We're on the edge of 78, 79, 80 inversion. I would say we could get as deep as a negative 100 basis points by the end of the year. What does that do to our listeners and viewers? This is, folks, 45 years. I've never heard this. What does it do to us? I think that it really leaves us in a anxious position where we don't know how far the Fed's ultimately going to need to push things because they'll be coming out with even more hawkish rhetoric. Because as Lisa points out, that will lead to a lessening of financial or easing of financial conditions. Did he just say there's going to be extra special more Fed speak? Oh, it's the Fed reality show. And this is what people are watching. And we all cling to every word as much as we want to say, does it really matter if they keep talking? Well, yeah, actually, markets move up every time they do. Our esteemed team that puts a show together every day called up Ian Lingen today and begged. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Benenberg joins us right now. Uh, he's international economist at Wells Fargo and maybe more than anybody I know nails foreign exchange more on a longer term basis as well. Let's dovetail your work over the years with foreign exchange into international economics. Is, is the study of the dollar, is the study of foreign exchange valuable in gaming out international economics right now? Well, Yes, I, you know, I actually think maybe the study of international economics is more helpful in terms of the dollar uh, because we've definitely seen differences in growth. Europe's already in recession. The United Kingdom, the, the eurozone is very, very close to being there, whereas the U.S. is holding on, you know, pretty well. Uh, I think that's going to be sort of more influential in just the relative growth trends uh, helping the dollar for now, but seeing the dollar depreciate later. So the study in, forget about Q4, we're almost through it. The study into next year, is it a study of what the U.S. will do or is it more centric on what Europe will do, Japan will do, a beleaguered United Kingdom will do? Which side of that trade is the one we should focus on? You know, I think there's always a focus on the United States and, you know, perhaps quite, quite rightly so, the largest financial market, the largest economy in the world. And as you earlier noted, you know, a comment here or there from the Federal Reserve policymakers, and we've seen, you know, yields higher and the dollar higher as well. So I think that's where the surprise is going to be. Um, we believe that the Federal Reserve funds rate is going to go above 5% up to five and a quarter. And so I still think it's Federal Reserve monetary policy for now that's going to drive the dollar a little bit higher and keep those foreign currencies probably on the defensive. Let's talk about some of that monetary policy. Jim Bullard in comments talking about how we're not yet restrictive. Also saying this, he cites policy rules suggesting rates between 5% and 7%. This is Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed moments ago or about a half an hour or 20 minutes ago. How much are we looking at something that is going to cause the dollar to surge to levels that people are not expecting and cause some sort of fissure here that, that needs a response? Well, I mean, those rules or those targets are, you know, probably a moving point. And, I, and you know, I think a 5% level and 7% is a long way, uh, but I think a 5% level is reasonable when you've got these inflation numbers at 7 or 8%. Now, I think longer term, you know, maybe in the region of 25 to 3 is, is kind of more reasonable. Um, uh, but uh, I think in the current context, these very high rates are, are, are more than, you know, more than appropriate. Uh, I think, you know, from your perspective or the other question, part of your question was, will we see the dollar surge to levels that, that we haven't seen before? I don't. I think we'll get back to recent peaks and maybe slightly above. Uh, but uh, for now, the dollar's moving higher. But the end of the inflation problem is probably in sight, and so we'll probably get back to recent highs, not go above them. What would a interest rate, a federal funds rate of seven percent, do to oh, an economy on. with this much debt? That's the that's the um, Grandma. We're saying. Well, Nick, I'm sorry. You know, she does this. She goes excessive. <laughs> well, it would probably we 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 already think there's going to be a recession uh, with the high inflation weighing on purchasing power. These you know housing market being affected by these high interest rates. So unfortunately, it would be a deeper recession um, than what we would expect. Um, but but again, not the pandemic okay. and not the global financial crisis. Did you say seven percent? 
That's what he's that's what Jim Bullard of the Federal Reserve of St. Louis said that it could get up to. Of course, that, that policy rules suggest rates between I'm five. Sorry. It could what be would irresponsible. Dudley say to that? He might be in agreement because he was someone who got out front. But uh, my question 7%? is, the, the issue has been this market has been able to tolerate interest rates well beyond what anybody okay. thought previously were expected. So now we're suddenly readjusting Nick, to a new normal. Nick, you, you, you just you've done so well over the decades in gaming the markets and particularly your expertise in foreign exchange. I'm absolutely fascinated by if you think all these fancy people are overcome by events and that if you get 5% or 6% or 7%, whatever the nation is, they, they're overcome by the politics of it, including what we saw in the United Kingdom this morning. Uh, well, I don't know if they're overcome by it. Um, but, I, you know, again, I think that... Uh we're going back to levels that we haven't seen in a couple of decades. Uh, we've got Fair. inflation that we haven't seen in a couple of decades. Uh, it's all a moving target, and no one really knows where the peak is. What I would say, though, and, and again, why we think interest rates don't go to seven, maybe they get to five. Why we think the dollar get back to its Please. previous peak is we're starting to see the first encouraging signs on the inflation front. Those supplier delivery times are down a lot. The commodity prices are down. Some of the shipping costs are down. So... You know, we think there's still some further dollar strength to go, there's still some interest rate increase, but we're pretty heavily focused on sort of the first quarter, okay. second quarter of next year as being the peak, and hopefully things will improve from then. Nick, thank you so much. Nick Benenbrook with us with Wells Fargo. What we're seeing right now is a market that continually is surprised by the same message being sent by the Fed over and over again. Why is the market <laughs> surprised? I don't understand. Let's speak to the market. Beata Kerr is going to represent the market today. Go out of investment strategies at Bernstein Private Wealth. I'm curious from your perspective, why is the market surprised that the Fed keeps getting more and more hawkish in their rhetoric? I'm not sure that the market's surprised. I think the market's trying to find its footing. The same things that you've been quoting this morning, all investors are struggling with. It is a macro-led market. We're focused on earnings and differentiation in companies, but there's no doubt about it that inflation, 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 like you said earlier, is the key to market direction. What's the sense of consumer spending? And I say this because at the same time that you have Fed officials saying, we're not seeing signs of slowing, it's not trickling in as quickly as we would like, we see the likes of Kohl's having a really hard time. We see the likes uh, yesterday from some others having a really hard time. Target not doing well. How do you parse out the winners from the losers with some sort of narrative that really gives you a sense of where things are heading? Well, there's two different narratives that you can start to interpret from the retail sales data as well as the earnings from these companies. First of all, you look at the macro picture and say, what does that mean about what the consumer has left to spend and where in the consumer spending bucket, it, who's getting most affected? And there's no doubt about it that the low-end consumer is squeezed more. That's not surprising. That's what we've historically seen when you see food and gas prices up over time, that's what's happening. Walmart, we know that they noted over 100,000 consumers are spending more on groceries at Walmart, right? But then you start to differentiate between these retailers and you look at a franchise like Costco, membership-based, huge mm. loyalty, done an excellent job, not just on supply chain, but on labor, and it makes a big difference. So I think when it comes to the micro, the time now is for stock selection and company differentiation. Companies are different in how they're able to right. manage the chain and, and labor you know, as well. Talk in my book, uh, but I, what I love in your research note, and you get down to something that was gospel in my house: SPX midterms up sixteen percent, presidential year up eight percent. You got to be kidding me! The history of these midterms we just had inflicted upon us is double-digit SPX return. 
Well, we have to be careful saying history always repeats itself. Come on, stay with me. It's showbiz. Stay with me here. (laughs) It would be awesome to see a 16% recovery post the midterms. That is what history said, Tom, and that is what we've published. But you got to get back to fundamentals and stay balanced. I mean, Lisa's point earlier about surprise. You don't want to be playing the game of trying to switch asset classes and sectors in in a fast way here because there is so much surprise that's possible in the market. And I think the midterms are some element of surprise as well, obviously. So- I think you have to be humble and you have to be balanced. Okay, you got to be balanced, but do you buy quality? I mean, you buy small pack, small cap quality, mid cap quality, big stuff, Apple, whatever. Give us a differentiation of those sectors that create the active alpha you're predicting. Yep, you must have read our note. Quality no, growth have, is an area. My people read the note. I don't read the notes. Yeah, quality growth is an area that we like, and I think we like it most in the large cap space. Um, small caps are interesting as well, but obviously we feel we could be entering recessionary period. And even if that recession is mild, critical. small caps could be more vulnerable. Lisa so. wants to jump in here, but this is critical. Are you going to see record use of cash by those big cap quality names? I think we could. I think they've got more strength in their balance sheets. They've yeah. got more ability to maintain um, quality just on labor as well. Obviously, you're seeing cuts and ad spending and in tech, but there's still quality names like Microsoft, like Visa, the, that we find attractive. I know. This is what your zombie the, no, no. thesis. This is this what you're is going zombie- with this. I know exactly I, I, where you're I, heading. I'm all... Carry <laughs> <laughs> on. But I do wonder, Viata, just to build on that, because it is Carol an important point. would never point. treat me like that. It is, it's an important yeah. point, this sort of question of what's going to lead to the catharsis where you get capitulation by companies to be purchased at a discount from other companies. Mm-hmm. At what point you get some sort of washout. What are you looking for to signal? And I understand company specific, but on a broad level, are we there yet? How do you know? In terms of company risk-taking? To in terms of stock valuations, in terms of the oh. appetite of investors. Yeah, I don't think we're at total capitulation. I mean, we think we may have seen the bottom. We feel like we're in a range-bound market, somewhere in the 3,600 to 4,000 in the next 6 to 12 months on the S&P. Our base case is for an earnings decline that we have not yet seen factored no. into the market. No. Those bottom-up earnings forecasts are just starting to come down. You're starting to see 22 come down, 4Q come down. 23 hasn't yet been been touched. And that's because that visibility is so murky. Mm. Everybody's struggling with the ultimate Fed question. But you're seeing companies starting to respond on cost management. That's going to play out on margins. And that bad news for people is unfortunately good news ultimately for the market and for earnings. What's fundamental here is we now have a risk-free rate. We now have finance somewhat back to what we are weaned on. And my great theme is the zombies of all flavors are going to be rolled up in 2023. Mm -hmm. Bernstein's heritage, the black books of Bernstein's heritage is studying that. Do you see combinations and transactions on fire next year? Um, I don't think we've put out a forecast for M&A volume. No, I, I know we haven't put out a forecast. So just, you know, yeah. Nobody's watching. Come on, help yeah. me. <laughs> we're continuing <laughs> to see M&A volume be robust. I think what you're seeing here is financial conditions and risk-taking obviously have gone up recently. And I don't see a, a real change to that. I think companies are continuing to innovate and invest for the yeah. future. And if they can do that with roll-ups and um, right. mergers, then why not? Right. But I right. think they're going to be opportunistic. Beata Kerr, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Team private uh, wealth management today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.